Hollywood Community Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. We are now in the second week of our series out of the book of 1 Corinthians called Lego Church. And this series really focuses on the unity that we have as believers in Jesus Christ. That's a, the big theme of the book of 1 Corinthians is our togetherness. And over eight Sundays, last week, this Sunday, and six more, we're going to be looking at the truth of the book of 1 Corinthians together. And really, the idea of a Legos is a very apt analogy for the church as described by Paul in the book of 1 Corinthians. And the reason why is because Legos separated are just kind of average, aren't they? Uh, they're, they're colorful and things, but they, they're just kind of a nuisance. They, they scatter. They don't, they don't do much. But if you take the same set of Legos and you put them under the direction of a designer, then they build something beautiful. Gavin Newland is our designer of the day. And uh, this beautiful creation that, that Gavin made, there you see on the screen behind me. Um, but the reason why that's possible for Legos is though they're very different in shape and color and size, they were designed to fit together to make something beautiful. And that's exactly what the church is. We are a group of different people that are designed in different shapes, sizes, and colors. But we are designed in such a way to fit together in order to be involved in God's beautiful plans in the world. And so we began that study last week. We're going to continue it today. And today we're going to be looking at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through chapter 2, verse 5. But before we look at those verses together, I want to pray for us. Father, thank you for today. Thank you uh, for just the truth of the testimony that Eric just shared through song. Father, thank you that you are with us every hour of every day that we can depend upon you. And so, Father, we want to depend on you right now. We want to depend on you for the next few minutes as we look at your word, Father, that we would not, um, as a speaker, that I would not rely on preparation or um, just some thoughts, but I would rely upon you. And as a congregation, that we wouldn't rely just on our ability to stay awake for the next few minutes or on what we have known in the past, but Father, that we would rely upon you and the work of your spirit within our hearts to illuminate your text, that it would come alive and that we would see it and we would understand it. Father, I pray that you would uh, just protect me this morning from saying anything you wouldn't want said. But Father, if, if I wander off and say something you wouldn't want said, I pray that it would just quickly be forgotten. But anything I share today, Father, that are your words and your truth, I pray that we would remember them, we would believe them, we would walk forward in them in the power of your spirit, that we might be shaped more into the image of your son. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I, I mentioned we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 18 through chapter 2, verse 5 today. And really, that section of verses deals a lot with the centrality of the cross in the Christian life. And so as we begin to talk about the cross, I just want you to reflect a little bit on this morning. I want you to reflect on this morning and think about how many crosses you saw between the time you woke up and right now, uh, you might have seen them in your house, it, arranged in decoration on a wall or on a shelf. 
You might have placed them around your neck or on your ears in, in jewelry of some kind. You might have seen them hanging from the rearview mirror in your car. You might have seen them hang, you know, on, the, on the outside of different church buildings that you pass between your house and here. Uh, you might have seen them in the gathering hall as little Lego crosses out there. You might have seen them behind slides as we saw worship lyrics and sang them. You, you might see it up here, this large wooden cross that's beside me. Uh, we've seen a lot of crosses today. And when you think about it, uh, when we think about how often we see the cross, we can become desensitized to really what the message of the cross is. And especially as people that live in 2013, we can find it difficult to relate to passages of Scripture like 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 2, 5 that talk about the cross as something that is a stumbling block. It, talks about the cross as something that looks foolish. Well, well, where does that come from? Well, it comes not just from a 2013 perspective. It comes from a first century Corinthian perspective of the cross. A couple of quotes I came across this week that will help us to understand a little bit about what this is about. D.A. Carson says this. He says, what would you think if a woman came to work wearing earrings stamped with an image of the mushroom cloud of the atomic bomb dropped over Hiroshima? What would you think of a church building adorned with a fresco of the massed graves at Auschwitz? The same sort of shocking horror was associated with cross and crucifixion in the first century. Um, The cross was an instrument of execution. In Roman culture, it was something so bad that a Roman citizen would never be hung on a cross. It was a symbol of horror. Uh, Gordon Fee wrote a very famous commentary on the book of 1 Corinthians. This is what he says. He says, It's hard for the Christianized West, where the cross for almost 19 centuries has been the primary symbol of the faith, to appreciate how utterly mad the message of a God who got himself crucified by his enemies must have seemed to the first century Greek or Roman. But it is precisely the depth of this scandal and folly that we must appreciate if we're to understand both why the Corinthians were moving away from it toward wisdom, and why it was well over a century before the cross appears among Christians as a symbol of their faith. See, the cross for us is very common. For them, it was very scandalous. And yet, in the cross, we find an incredible opportunity for unity as believers in Christ. We look at the cross as something beautiful, as something to gather around in worship because of what was accomplished on it. But the cross is not just something that unites believers, it's actually something that also divides the world. And so we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 through chapter 2, verse 5. So if you've got a Bible, take it out and open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18. We're going to see three things this morning about the togetherness and the unity that we have in Christ, in light of the cross. First thing we're going to see is this. We are together under the cross. We are together under the cross. I mentioned just a moment ago that the cross is something that unites and brings together believers, but it's something that divides the world. It divides the world, really, according to verse 18, into two categories, into two camps. This is what it says in verse 18. 
Paul writes and says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul says that this issue of the cross, the the place where Jesus bled and died, has become a dividing marker in the world. Those who are Christians, those who have embraced what Jesus has done for them and live in relationship with God because of what Christ has done, look at the cross as something beautiful. Look at the cross as something powerful. Look at the cross as this incredible gift from God of forgiveness and grace and mercy. But not everybody sees it that way. The cross actually divides the world into believers and unbelievers because while the believers see it as the power of God, it says the unbelievers... Those who are perishing, those who will have rejected the gift of God and will spend an eternity away from God after this life is done, that they see the cross as folly. They see the cross as something ridiculous, as something silly, as something foolish. Well, well, why would a first century person see the cross as folly, as something ridiculous, as something silly or foolish? Paul gives us insight into why they felt that way. Skip down to verse 22. Paul talks about how of those who would view the cross as folly, there are two categories of those folks, the Jews and the Greeks. Everybody in Corinth was either a Jew or a Greek, pretty much. They either were somebody that grew up with a Jewish background, um, or they were somebody that was just a secular person in, in, in Greece. The city of Corinth was in the nation of Greece, so Jews or Greeks. He said, the Jews' particular problem, the reason why the Jews would see the cross as something foolish is because it didn't meet their expectations. He says, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. The, the Jews had difficulty with the cross because they were demanding signs. Jews frequently would look to God's power to reveal his presence. So a Jewish person would say, I want to see God do some miraculous things, and when I see those miraculous things, I know that God is present there. God is present in strength. And of course, we hear that and we think, well, do they not know about the rest of his life? I mean, Jesus' life was full of strength, right? I mean, there were, Jesus would show up and blind people could see. That's some strength. Jesus would show up and teach with authority. That's strength. Jesus would speak to a grave and Lazarus would walk out. That's strength. But at the cross, a Jewish person would not see strength, they would see weakness. Because what is more weak than someone dying? There's a a weakness inherent in death. And and much more so than just any kind of death, this was a, a terrible death. This was a death that somebody was led to and nailed to a tree. And a Jewish mind would look at that and say, hey, I'm looking for God and strength, and at the cross there is no strength, so the cross is foolishness to say that, that, was God, that God was there, that God was doing that, that God was present, that Jesus was God. See, a Jewish person looks at the cross as foolishness because they were looking for strength, and the cross looked like weakness. The Greek had a different problem. The person of, of Greek descent had a different problem. See, the Greeks loved wisdom. They were people that, that, that loved wisdom. They, Aristotle and Plato, they loved orators, people that could spin a good yarn. They, they would have traveling philosophers show up in town and entertain with their ability to, 
to spin words and, and to twist phrases and to make sense of different parts of life. That was the way that a Greek mind worked. And the, the cross for them didn't make sense because the cross didn't look wise. The cross looked foolish to them. I mean, are you really going to attach your hopes to a philosopher that couldn't outwit Pilate? Are you really going to follow somebody that could be done up by, by Judas Iscariot? I mean, really? That is God's wisdom? It looked like foolishness to them. To the Jew, it looked foolish because it looked weak. To the Greek, it looked foolish because it just looked silly for us to embrace such an idea. Verse 23, it says, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. He calls it a stumbling block to the Jews. Again, the Jews had an expectation of what Messiah would look like. Messiah, uh, or God's promised one who would bring deliverance and salvation to his people, would be the most blessed of all people. This was the expectation of, of, of the Jewish mind. And yet, the Bible is clear in Deuteronomy chapter 21, and it's echoed over in Galatians chapter 3, that everybody who hangs on a tree is not blessed, they're what? Cursed. And so, to the Jewish mind, they stumble over the cross because they say, we want to follow the Messiah, the one who is blessed, and yet here's this one who is so obviously cursed. Now, what are they missing? Jesus willfully took the curse of God, even though he was sinless, so that you and I might be separated from the curse of God. But to the Jewish mind, they're stumbling over the cross because it didn't look like their expectation. It says the, the Greeks, the Gentiles, it just looks like, like folly. Again, it's just silly to embrace this kind of a thought. See, the cross looks foolish to those who are perishing. It just doesn't make sense. True in the first century, and it's true today. We'll talk about that in a second. But what about to those who are being saved? What about to those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ and are trusting in his work on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins? How do we view the cross? We view it quite differently, don't we? Verse 24, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, it's interesting, the church in Corinth was not made up of some third category of people. They were made up of people of Jewish and Greek background that God had opened their eyes and they had come into a relationship with God through the work of Jesus Christ. He says, but to those of us who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What's he saying there? He's saying that at the cross, at this historical event, when Jesus walked up the hill of Calvary and was nailed to a tree, at that point, though it looked like weakness, it was actually incredible strength because what God did in that moment was something so strong, he was able to reach down and lift up all of humanity because he took all of our sin and he placed it upon Jesus and he judged it right there. It was a point of great strength, not of great weakness. And though the world looks at it, though a Jewish mind looks at it and says, that's weak that Jesus died, the reality is it was very strong because that which looked weak was actually the source of our salvation. Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. And 
at the point of the cross, even though it, it looked foolish, Jesus was not the victim of Pilate or of Judas or of anybody else. This was the plan of God from the foundation of the world, that he would come and offer a substitute, a sacrifice to die on the cross for our sins. I mean, I think all the way back just how God was preparing this point. I mean, think of the story of Abraham back in the book of Genesis. And Abraham had one son named Isaac. And Abraham and Isaac go walking up the mountain and, and God has told Abraham to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. And they get right to the point of the sacrifice and God says, stop. And God provides an alternative, which was a, a ram stuck in the thicket. And at, at that point, you see that God had this plan from the very beginning. God had this plan to offer a, a substitute, a sacrifice, so that we might have our sins forgiven, that someone else might die so that we might live. It looked like foolishness, but it wasn't foolishness, was it? It was the plan of God from the beginning for us to live in relationship with him. See, the cross is the point in history where God judged your sin and mine if we would but trust him. And yet, many look at the cross as foolishness. Well, why do they look at the cross as foolish? I mean, we've seen some of the rationale, but what's the root of it all? Well, like the root of it is that it's very difficult for us to receive a gift. It is very difficult for us to come to grips with the idea that our salvation is found in a unilateral action of what somebody else has done for us and not what we have done for ourselves. It's difficult for us to rest totally in God's provision and not want to add something to it from ourselves. Look at what he says back in verse 19. Here, Paul is, is quoting a verse from the book of Isaiah um, and this is what he says. He says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Uh, this verse was written in Isaiah, and it had to do with a time when the Assyrian army was coming down to, to take the nation of, of Judah captive. And at that point, when Assyria is coming down, the, the leaders of Judah gathered together, and they tried to, to kind of pool together all of their uh, political acumen and strike a deal that would lead to their salvation. And God says, no, 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 no. I'm going to orchestrate your salvation in such a way, O people of Judah, in Isaiah chapter 29, I'm going to orchestrate your salvation in such a way that you can't take any credit for it. I'm going to orchestrate it in such a way that I alone am providing your deliverance, not through your political strength, but through my strength alone. And that's exactly what happened. And, and Paul here quotes it because that's the same issue with us. We, we reject the cross as foolishness because we want to think that our ability to have a relationship with God rests upon our ability. It rests upon our performance. It rests upon our pedigree. And yet that's not the case. God says, that idea, I'll destroy it, and I'll show you how I do it in the cross Verse 20 and 21, he says, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God that through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Some have taken those verses and wanted to say with them that, that all of the wisdom of the world is worthless. 
Um, I don't think that's the point of this passage. I don't think Paul was saying that nothing that comes out of the mouth of a human is ever worth anything. Uh, There's a lot of things that humanity has discovered, that humanity that doesn't know Christ has discovered, things in in the sciences and in in all kinds of things, that we can look into a, a telescope and build a telescope and we can understand things that are happening out there. We can get a microscope. We can understand very small things that are happening here. We can come up with theories and philosophies that make sense of a lot of things. What he's not saying is that all human wisdom is pointless. What he's saying is that human wisdom is pointless to accomplish one thing, to connect someone to God. Human wisdom and philosophy comes up short in connecting someone to God. It might help you make sense of your calendar, of your workday, but it's powerless to connect someone to their creator. And Paul writes to remind us that God has chosen to make it very clear that it is through the work of Christ on the cross alone that we might have a relationship with Him. Now, what do we do with this? What do we do with this idea that we're together under the cross? Well, a couple of things that that I think are important for us to to acknowledge and notice at this time. Um, the, The first thing has to do with coming to God on God's terms. You know, so many times in books that you read and sermons that you hear, you know, hopefully not from me, but I'm sure this imprint comes from me too at times. This is why we all need to check out anything that you hear out of my mouth. Check it out in the scripture because this is right and I can be wrong. But so many times our practice of theology, you know what it is? It's, it's a, an exercise in reflecting on our own mind and imagination. Thinking about what we think God should be like. And then we come to some kind of a conclusion, and we want to photocopy that picture of our imagination and then export it as who God is. This passage would indicate for us that there's a real problem in doing that. Why? Because sometimes the way God does stuff is just different than how we think it should be done. Sometimes His strength looks like weakness to us. Sometimes His wisdom looks like foolishness to us. And we we need to remember that so that it prevents us from coming to God on our own terms, on the basis of our imagination. We need to let God reveal himself to us from his word. I think that's one thing we need to be careful of, and that's something that I need to be careful of as well. A second thing, though, that I think we can apply from this this idea in this section is we need to really reflect upon the, the notion of who are we trusting in for our salvation, who are we trusting in for the forgiveness of our sins? Who are we trusting in for our, the establishment of our relationship with God? Um, you know, we, we, need to, we need to reflect upon that because this passage would tell us that there's only one true source of hope, and that is through what Jesus has done on the cross. There's a question, you've probably heard this question before, but the question goes something like this. If you were to die tonight, how certain are you that you would spend an eternity with God in heaven? It's a great question to ask. You know, as, as I, I turn 40 this summer, I'm, I feel like I'm closer to that point than I've ever been, and, and that's true. You, you know what? That's true for all of you, too. I, I don't know how old you are. Um, you're, you're a wonderful-looking group of people, but you realize you're closer to death now than you've ever been. Just a fact. It's chronology. I can't do anything about it. I'm not trying to be depressing, just real. And, and that, that's, that's the reality. We're closer to it. So it's a very important for us to reflect upon the idea of where we're going to spend life after death. And if 
the answer to our question is anything other than yes, because of what Jesus did on the cross, then we've got the wrong answer that could lead to the wrong destination for our eternity. See, if our answer has to do with, with our ideas and our thoughts and our, and our good deeds, then we have no hope in that. But if our answer is tied to the work of Christ on the cross, we can have confidence because his work is done complete, and I could screw up tomorrow, but his work is complete on the cross. Who are you trusting this morning? We're together as believers under the cross. Second thing we're going to see, though, is this. We're together under grace. We're together under grace. We see this in verses 26 to 31 of chapter 1. Now, I, I think this is really funny how Paul speaks to the people of Corinth here. Um, he, he, just, he just does everything short of just full frontal, um, you know, insulting them. Um, it's Corinthian roast edition right here. Um, he says in verse 26, "'For consider your calling, brothers,' Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Uh, What he's saying is, hey guys, look around the room. Not all of you have famous parents. Actually, not many of you have famous parents. Not many of you come from the most influential families in our city. Not many of you have the best jobs in our city. Not many of you will ever write a book that anybody else will ever read. Not many of you will ever be famous in any way, shape, or form. That's who you are, Corinthians. Um, and, and Paul says it. Now, now, why does Paul say that? Why, why is part of his strategy in communication to, to say something so blunt to these people? Well, it's to show that their lack of famousness is actually part of the plan of God. Look at what it says in 27 to 29, it says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. In other words, hey, look around the room, guys. You guys are common. This is what Paul says to the Corinthians. You're a bunch of common people, and you know what? That's by design. It's by design because it's to show the world that God has selected us to be on his team, not because we look the best, not because we're the most famous, but to highlight the power of the cross and to highlight the depth of his grace. Verses 30 and 31, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. What this passage tells us very clearly is that our hope for eternity is found in him and in him alone. If we are to to boast in anything, it is to be in him and to him alone, not in us and not in, in how famous our church is or how famous our pastor is or how famous our friends are, but it's in Christ alone. That's our one and our only hope. Not in our our family, not in our pedigree, but in the cross. Now, this is another one of those just important things for us to reflect upon. Because 
we are people who like famous people. We're Americans. Americans like famous people. I mean, maybe other places in the world do too. I'm an American. I've always lived here. And I can tell you after 40 years of study and experience, Americans, me included, like famous people. Think of how many magazines fill the racks that do nothing but chase famous people around to let us know what they're doing. Um, You know, famous people from movies, famous people from sports, famous people that are famous just for being famous. I don't even know what they did, but now they're in magazines and we're supposed to care about where they spend their vacation and all this stuff's happening and we're going to chase them around. We got websites that people subscribe to to find out this information and there's TV shows. We love famous people. We just do. And, and when you think about our, our interest in famous people, it, it impacts the church. Because as American Christians, we bring our love of celebrity into the church. And the reason why we know this is what happens anytime a famous person ever mentions the name of Jesus. We love it. Now, now don't get me wrong. That's not a bad thing, right? It's not bad that there's a famous person that loves Jesus. There were some prominent people in Corinth that love Jesus too. But, but our infatuation with a famous person that talks about Jesus is just off the charts. I mean, you think about what happened when Mel Gibson says, I'm going to make the passion of the Christ. He's one of us. Put him on the conference speaker tour. Have him preach in our services. We don't even know what he believes, but man, he's talking about Jesus. Let's, let's celebrate that. That's why what happens whenever there's a football player that goes and plays at the University of Florida. He beats OU in a bowl game. He gets drafted by the Broncos, and then he gets traded to the Jets, and now he's with the Patriots. And people are so freaked out over Tim Tebow because he talks about Jesus. Now, now, hear me on this. I like Tim Tebow. You guys can hate me. You can send bad emails in my direction. Get over that game, okay? It was a long time ago. Um, <laughs> But, but when, you think about, when you think about Tebow and, and you know, Tim Tebow and who he is, it's like I'm very thankful that the guy knows Jesus, and I think that God is using him in a lot of ways. But, you know, I need to be careful that I don't get just so excited because he's famous. Because sometimes our mentality is that God can use famous people. He can't use us. And yet what does this passage say? This passage says that God delights in using common people because it makes his point. If you're a common person, just wave at me. You famous people out there, that's cool. Um, <laughs> common people like you and me, God wants to use in his point. Not just the famous people, God wants to use us as well. Warren Wearsby says this. He says, before his conversion, Paul had been very self-righteous. He had to give up his religion in order to go to heaven. The Corinthians were at the other end of the spectrum, and yet they were not too sinful for God to reach and save them. I, I love that, that quote. I love that thought because here's what it says. The other thing about being together under grace is that it's, it's not about your family and, and how good your upbringing or your education was. Paul had all of that. He had the good Jewish family. He had the best education. He went to the best seminaries. He did all this kind of stuff, and and. You know, he says, hey, it's not, wasn't about that. Uh, the Corinthians were as, as crazy as they could be. There's, there's passages that talk about all the crazy stuff the people in Corinth were doing. It's not about that. They're, the fact that they are in relationship with God has everything to do with what verse 26 says is the calling of God into relationship with him. And so here's what that means for us. 
Um, if you're in a relationship with Christ, what I want you to do is I want you at some point today just to, just to hit your knees. This is a thought that just kind of overwhelmed me when I was studying this this week. Just hit your knees and just thank God for saving you. Because God didn't save you because of your parents. I, I love my parents. I have great parents. And sometimes I think about the opportunities I got because I was a Robinson. But you know what? My salvation is not because I was a Robinson. My salvation is not because I was blessed to be able to go to a seminary or was blessed to be able to come to Wildwood when I was a college student. My, my salvation is because Jesus called me into relationship with him. My salvation was because of the cross. And, and because of that, we, as we gather together under grace, we need to hit our knees. We need to thank God. We are together under the cross. We are together under grace. Third thing, we're together sharing one message. We're together sharing one message. This is over in chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. And really, in order to understand this, you need to understand a little bit about what would happen in Greek culture at this time. When, when a visiting person would come to share in a city, I mentioned earlier there were philosophers that would travel around. When a philosopher would show up in a city, what they, would, what they would do is they would probably spend their first talk, their first session, just kind of buttering everybody up. Man, you Corinthians are awesome. This is the best city, the best food, the best view. This is a wonderful place. Your advancements in art and architecture, off the charts. End of first session. Why would the speaker do that? Well, hopefully to get them to come back for session number two. But what happened when Paul showed up in Corinth was something altogether different. Paul showed up in Corinth and he didn't butter him up. I mean, we saw how he talked to him. Hey, you guys are a bunch of common people. Paul showed up and instead of buttering them up, he just spoke to them the truth. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul shows up in Corinth, and he just tells them about Jesus. And think of the implications of that message in the contrast to the other speakers of his day. You guys are so awesome. That's what those speakers would normally say. Paul shows up, and what does he say? You guys are so sinful, and Jesus died for you. Paul speaks forth that message. And, you know, what's, what's really interesting is that as Paul spoke that message, he, he didn't speak it even necessarily very well. Now, you know, that's one of those statements that we push back. It's like Paul's the apostle. He wrote the New Testament. If anybody was going to say it well, it was him. Who are you, you know, 2,000 years later to critique Paul's preaching? Hey, it's not me. I'm just reading the passage, okay? Uh, this is what it says in verses 3 to 5. Paul says, and when I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That is an amazing statement. Because here the Apostle Paul is talking about how he was, the frame of mind he was in in his presentation when he was in Corinth. It says that he came there in weakness and fear and in much trembling. Commentators have a number of different opinions about that, but I'll, I'll tell you my general understanding of what happened here. Paul was giving a very accurate description of how he was feeling when he showed up in Corinth. Paul had just showed up in Corinth after 
being kicked out of and beaten up in every city he had visited. And when he shows up in Corinth, any cockiness that he left Antioch with was not present by the time he got to Corinth. Any expectation that the world will be changed today through me and that everybody will line up and give me a parade when I show up to town, any thought of that was eliminated by the time he got to Corinth. Paul gets to Corinth and he's, he's beaten up and he's been kicked out and he's been stoned and he shows up in this town in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, but it didn't temper his message. He still opened his mouth. He still pointed them to Christ. And Paul reflects back on that experience and says, you guys believed not because of me, in spite of me. So that you would know that your salvation rests in the cross and not in Paul. And, you know, I, I, I think about that passage and I think about that truth. And this ought to give incredible encouragement to, to, to you and me. Because so many times when it comes to sharing our faith, there's two things that get in the way a lot of times. One of the things that gets in the way to us sharing our faith is that we want we don't know exactly what to say. And the second thing is we're afraid of the fact that we're not going to say it well enough. But what Paul indicates in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 is that the message was very simple. Jesus died for your sins. Very simple message. And what Paul says is that the power to save the Corinthians was not found in the strength of his presentation. It was found in the work of the Christ. It freed him up. As a matter of fact, when that dynamic was at play, it allowed the Corinthians to anchor their salvation to the cross and not to Paul, a truth that he keeps hitting them on over and over and over again. See that they were together sharing this one message with others that they might believe. You know, I, I uh, just honestly, there, there are so many times um, as, as somebody that, that, you know, I work at a church, I'm a pastor, I've, I've, and Settings like this, I'm in Bible study settings, um, classrooms, different things a lot of times. And, and so often I feel like, man, that stunk. I mean, really, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying this, you know, uh, I'm just being honest with you guys. I remember specifically, some of you may have heard me tell this story, but um, I remember specifically giving a message on Revelation chapter 19 on the OU campus my second year in Norman. I remember walking away thinking that was the worst presentation of Revelation 19 that has ever been given. Um, I just bored this group of people to death on something that should be totally exciting and, and life-changing. And um, that, was, that was my thought. It wasn't eloquent words. I, I, it, was, it was just bad. And yet there was somebody that I know very well that, that came to Christ that night. And I've continued to relate to them over the years. And, and you know what that relationship has been a reminder to me of? Hey, Mark, it's not about you. It's about Jesus. It's not about how good you can say it. It's about the power of the cross. And the same thing ought to be a reminder to all of us. It's not about how good we say it. We, we, we stop doing lots of things because we're so concerned about presenting it exactly right in the most articulate way. We want to get people to the famous person who can say it really well so that they can say it the right way. The reality is that all of us have the capacity to say that very simple message, that Jesus died for you. invite the worship team to come up. We're going to close and sing a song here in just a minute. But I want to read for you a, a quote from D.A. Carson again. Um, just a powerful kind of underline to the end of this passage. Carson says this. He says, what Paul avoided 
was artificial communication that won plaudits for the speaker, but distracted from the message. Lazy preachers have no right to appeal to 1 Corinthians 2, 1-5 to justify indolence in the study and careless delivery in the pulpit. These verses do not prohibit diligent preparation, passion, clear articulation, and persuasive presentation. But this is so important. Rather, they warn against any method that leads people to say, what a marvelous preacher, rather than what a marvelous Savior. You know, when we gather here this morning to worship, my sincere hope and desire is that we all walk out of here going, what a marvelous Savior. We have a chance to worship now, singing this song together about being sweetly broken for us. Please stand and go. 